Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Hi folks, it's Helia. So hopefully you've already listened to the first part of this episode, which was a take on board event featuring Hannah Brown talking about cybersecurity. If you haven't already listened to that, go back and listen to it. You might also want to have a listen to an episode she did for us about a month ago as well. I'll make sure a link to that is in the show notes. So yeah, go back and listen to both of those first. Okay, hopefully you've gone and done that and now you're back again. So at the end of the Take On Board event that Hannah spoke at recently, we had so many questions, we couldn't deal with them all in one go. So here's Hannah and I in conversation uh, with all of those questions. Lots of information here, lots of resources, lots of incredible tips about cybersecurity and technology for board directors. Let's get on with it, shall we? Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Folks, we have just done the breakfast with Hannah Brown and there were so many questions that we couldn't answer them all in the session. So she has kindly agreed to stay on the line to answer a few more of them, which you are now hearing on the podcast. So, Hannah, further questions. In terms of risk appetite statements, how do we move beyond full barrier protection or the expectation of full barrier protection and that zero risk tolerance? What are your thoughts there? Uh, Look, great question. And and just for, for those of you tuning into the podcast, During the talk, I I equated cyber resilience with barrier protection, like using condoms. It's very difficult to, without abstinence, stay 100% safe 100% of the time. But um, in using some form of barrier protection, you will protect yourself to a sensible degree in a way that you can still engage in in, the fun uh, of the activity whilst being safe. I think... In answer to the question about the zero risk tolerance appetite on the board, this is a case of director education. So people without a background in technology might not have an appreciation for the nuance and the complexity of the landscape. It is the same as any other organisational risk that we face. We need to balance 
the need to protect ourselves and defend our personally identifiable information with the reality of resource constraints, time, energy, effort, you will rapidly approach diminishing returns in this space. You want to think about one of the key points of, of the talk that we just went through is don't let perfection stand in the way of good. You know, it is much better to get started and to focus on five or six key themes within the organisation that will give you that 80% coverage or, or that good outcome. Those five key themes being we really need multi-factor authentication across any system with personally identifiable information. We need network monitoring. You need to understand the traffic and what is occurring on your systems and across your networks so that you can identify when things are out of the ordinary are occurring. We need training and education for our staff and our internal team members around cybersecurity, you know, social engineering, which is where somebody convinces you to give them their username and password, or phishing, which is where you get a, an email that looks innocuous enough, but it's actually mining you for data to then use in an attack later, are two of the most common starting points for any cyber breach. This is an arms race. Don't, don't be mistaken. This isn't a set and forget problem that we can solve once. This is an evolving Cold War-esque arms race that we need to continually monitor and, and oversee. So, so ongoing training and education for staff around phishing and around social engineering is the third key point of, of cyber resilience. A, a vulnerability assessment with a key partner, someone who specialises in cybersecurity that can highlight where your current gaps are and help you put together a roadmap to resilience is key. And finally, and I do believe that this point comes last in your five factors of cyber resilience, is what policies, what procedures and what insurance do you need to ensure that you are honouring your fiduciary duty as a director? I think we've got to get a whole bunch of stuff sorted out. Uh, I don't think policy is the answer immediately. I think we need to get you know, the I's dotted and the T's crossed around what keeps us safe mm -hmm. and then look to crystallise that in policy and ensure that there is that ongoing evaluation, that ongoing retrospective look at, you know, what's going well, what's not going so well. What are the attacks that have occurred over the last 12 months that, you know, but since we last reviewed our policy? So I think the zero risk tolerance, well, it's a very valid question. It's also a very naive director's view, to be perfectly honest. Because anyone who's got zero tolerance for risk probably doesn't really have a place in the boardroom. Um, <laughs> and while that's easy to look at from a financial perspective, because we've got a lot more experience looking at it and, it, and it's hard to stare into the black box of technology with all of this nuance and complexity that I don't understand and say, well, I just want to be 100% safe. But the reality is there is no such thing as 100% safe. So what makes sense with the resources and the energy and effort that we've got now and what's good enough for us? Where do we see those diminishing returns? All hard questions to ask, no doubt. So picking up on one of those areas of cyber resilience that you talked about, uh, Rasika has asked, do you know of any service providers that can undertake cybersecurity assessments that are reasonably priced for small not-for-profits? No, I don't actually. But um, the way that I solve this problem is I have a cybersecurity guy <laughs> um, that I trust very deeply who I worked with for a long time at ThoughtWorks. The best way I've worked out to answer that question is probably five to 10 
really top cybersecurity people in Melbourne, where we are now. And, and it, you know, it, there'll be a handful more across the nation. And actually, if you know where those people work, they're the firms that are very reputable and they're the firms that will do an excellent job. And sadly, the um, cost effective and really high caliber do not often go together. But I would be happy enough to ping him for a coffee and find out who in the Melbourne market are reputable security vendors. Also, I'm very cognizant. I think there's a lot of snake oil salesmen in that space as well. Mm because it's a, an area of, of governance that not a lot of people have a depth of understanding on. I think it's it's easy to be taken for a ride in that space. And sadly, there's, you know, you hear enough stories about organisations that promise the world and don't deliver. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind taking that one on notice if I could help, maybe coming back. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Now, Jenny asks, what's the first thing you should or shouldn't do in the event of a cyber attack? Well... entirely sure how to answer that one because I think it depends on what kind of cyber attack it is it's totally context dependent it depends what the attack has been Mm. it depends where you know that is targeted it depends what people and energy and effort and resources you've got to dedicate to cyber security on the ground immediately we don't want to overreact to situations that don't warrant excessive response but we also don't want to underreact it's a little bit like a pandemic, you know, it could be just the seasonal cold going around, or it could actually be a global pandemic that requires us locking down populaces and and shutting everything down. If it's a breach with something like, uh, what was the one last week? I think it was Microsoft. There was some way that um, cyber criminals got into one of their core productivity suite workforces, and then were able to access data and information you know, in, in that kind of situation, other than patch your systems, there's not a lot you can do. Like if Microsoft's got a fault that has uh, resulted in a breach, you know, you might not want to use the Microsoft product suite for a period of time until they fix that, until you can roll out that fix right across your networks. On the other hand, if you like the mouse situation where your whole network is shutting down and everyone is being locked out of their terminals with a ransomware asking for $300 worth of crypto coin to unlock your systems, you know, your response there is going to be very different. And there's a sense of urgency with instant productivity destroying cyber attacks where everybody does have to down tools and work out how to solve the problem immediately. Thankfully, they're not the everyday cyber attack that you might get, you know, through a phishing email or some sort of ransomware or some sort of attempted fraud or identity theft. Yep. Yeah. Kate asks, how do we balance cybersecurity with the need for systems which allow people to do their jobs? Kate, like the Cold War and the arms race that is cyber resilience is the balance of productivity and usability in our technology systems. So I don't know if Kate comes from a user experience background or that she's got much interest in that space, but You know, I remember reading years ago about a piece of jewellery that Google was working on that was supposed to unlock all of our systems. So, you know, you could just put this ring on the keyboard of your computer and it would open up and maybe we're getting there now. I have a Mac. I can touch the top screen. It takes my thumbprint. You know, we've got Face ID on the phones, all of this kind of stuff. Striking that balance between security and usability is has come a long way from where it was. 
I look at my productivity now and compare that to 15 years ago. And if I think about the number of systems that I touch in my daily life, holy moly, like I would probably use in any given day up to 30 or 40 different usernames, logins, passwords. And the fact that I can do all of that with 30 seconds of effort to get in and I've got my security settings all set to, you know, I have to put the username and password in every time I reopen it, that's not too bad. But I also don't think it's as hard or as difficult as it used to be. I think it is getting a little bit better. Janika asks, and Janika, I so hope I've got the pronunciation of your name right. You've touched on WhatsApp and Facebook. Any thoughts on the use of Slack? Yeah, I'm a fan of Slack. I've got a lot of friends that work there. They were um, a very interesting company earlier in their life when they pivoted from being a games chat entity to realising that they could actually be a collaboration tool. I remember a friend of mine that worked there at the time and just understanding how their internal delivery operated. You know, they were scaling up at the time. They were very... You know, there was a bit of string and band-aids going on while they grew their company and they, they achieved that huge scale so quickly. But my understanding is now that they are one of the premier places to work in Melbourne, that they have a very robust approach to security because they realise that the data and the information, Slack essentially in, in a lot of organisations that use it extensively is the lifeblood of the organisation. It's the oxygen, it is the IP it is the relationships, it is the connections and the network, the, the human network, like it's almost like a, a nervous system of the business. So my understanding, and, and again, you know, this is hearsay, it's not, uh, it's, I'm not on the inside at Slack, I don't have access to how they perform their governance, but my understanding is that they're one of the good guys and that they're a pretty resilient, robust platform full of good people. Everyone I know that works there is people that I deeply respect in the market um, and that, for me, says more about an organisation's culture and abilities than anything is who I know, who mm. there, and how much regard I have for their career choices and their expertise. Next question, how would we address the issue of external parties that our organisation interacts with, they, them also having appropriate cyber security practices in place? Yeah, great question. Let's go back to our um, our cheat sheet, our five cheat sheet cybersecurity. So do they have two-factor authentication protecting systems that contain personally identifiable information? Great red flag question straight up. So are they monitoring their, their network and environments? You can ask them about what their, their network monitoring looks like. Do they run regular training for staff and employees on cybersecurity? I mean, I like the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST, N-I-S-T, framework out of the States. I've seen that used before, and I, I quite like how rounded that framework is. You know, have they recently conducted a vulnerability assessment? Where were their gaps? And I think the easy question to ask, and, and one that they should be able to provide very quickly, is they might not share their insurance with you, but what policies and procedures do they have around cyber resilience in their organisation, you're going to get a real flavour for how much they've invested. If you ask those five questions, they go, oh, uh, 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 and they can't tell you the last time they ran training for their team around cyber resilience. Like, you know, just no way. Like, take them off the list straight away. But I think most of these organisations, like, those, those questions might even make up part of your partner assessment. 
That's exactly what I was thinking, that it becomes part of the procurement process anyway for those that you're partnering with in that way. Of course, not every organisation that you deal with is a procurement partner, but it certainly would help to bring some of these things to light. And some of the organisations, I know a couple of little security firms, you know, they're really good security folks who've gone out on their own and started their own organisations. There is just so much work in this space at the moment, though. There are so many people that need help with this. Be pragmatic, be realistic. Don't ask for the world and, and offer to pay peanuts, but also like understand where the partner that you're talking to, where are they at in their life cycle? You know, values aligned partners, where are they at in their organisational life cycle? Where are you at? Are they the right partner for you? Yeah, it's not just about cost and service. It's not as simple as that. These yeah. are people that you need to trust and have a great degree of trust in. And that for me is a lot more like a partnership than a vendor arrangement or agreement. So Deb Colville asks if you can expand a bit more on two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication, but particularly for small volunteer organisations. Multi-factor authentication is where you have a login, so a username and password to access a system, but then you need to type in a second password. Easiest way to describe that is I have on my phone here the Google Authenticator app, um, and on there is a list of of applications that I use. You know, there's Slack, there's our employment system, Google, LinkedIn even has two-factor authentication now, which I think is fantastic. So I log in with a username and password, but then LinkedIn will ask me for what is the authentication. So I need to grab my phone, look at the authenticator app and type the number in. I much prefer the authenticator apps to the other way that you can do it is you get a text message. So, um, But I don't like the SMSs because if you happen to be overseas, not that many of us are at the moment, that SMS capability isn't usually always there. Whereas an authenticator app, it's right there for you. So Marg Lesser asks, or Marg's group actually, when I look at this, so Marg and her group, how safe are board portals to store and retrieve information? Great question. In both my business and the board that I'm on, we use G Suite, which is Google's email and productivity tools. I feel a degree of confidence in the size and scale of Google and the values of their organisation. They're not perfect by any stretch, but I have a lot more faith and trust in Google than I do in, say, Microsoft. So, In both of those organisations, all of that information is kept on the G Drive, which is a document management solution effectively for Google where you can store your sensitive documents. It also has multi-factor authentication, so it's fairly difficult to get into. I would be a bit wary of anything custom built, anything that we've built internally as a web portal. I don't particularly like intranets that much either. I think in my experience, and this is obviously biased and totally limited by my lived experience, but intranets tend to be somebody who is engaged and excited to place their pet project and then it gets built and then it gets left and ignored and it becomes this repository of IP for the organisation, which is incredibly valuable, but not necessarily cared for or looked after or protected in the way that such a treasure trove of information should be. So, you know, any custom-built portals or networks or anything like that, anything outside the major tech players, I, I would be a little bit wary of, but that's also because I haven't really seen that, seen them so a lot. 
So can I check then? So both the boards that I'm on, we use Diligent, which I think is pretty commonly used as a board portal for board papers and so on. I haven't even come across that one. I haven't even heard of it. Right. Okay. That's all right. So there's there's a number. There's Diligent, Cat Herd is one of the ones for smaller not-for-profits and so on. But that's interesting to hear, I think, for organisations that they don't need to – I mean, the subscription for Diligent is who knows what, but there is a, it's a subscription service. But what I'm hearing from you is it doesn't need to be one of those tailored board portals. Something like G Drive is fine as long as you've set it up right. So that's great for people to hear, I think. Yeah, I'm just looking at um, Diligent now. Again, you know, the size and scale of the organisation is a really good indicator. Their their client list is a really good indicator. I was talking more about, you know, if you've got a little web development agency, your intranet or your board portal, those are the things that I'd be a little bit worried about because they're great in the moment when they're built, but they don't age very well. And and if they're not looked after by some team in the organisation, Lots and lots of applications in organisations get lost in the wilderness yeah. and they, they just continue to exist, but they're not, there's no custodian for them. And these become big backdoors of which nefarious entities can get access to our organisations. Two more questions, Hannah. We're almost there. The next one is from Dominique and that is around if our customers are using Facebook and it's the best way for them to connect with us, how do we avoid Facebook and Messenger and WhatsApp and those things when customers or other users use them to interact with us? Yeah, that's a really great question and a really hard question and a question that I thought a lot about in recent weeks with the Australian government and their, uh, what's the best way to describe this? The dog and pony show around the negotiations with Mark Zuckerberg about Mm. um, paying for media content in Australia. Look, it's a really tough one. All of the news outlets saw a drop in readership as a result of that news ban by Facebook, which I think is really sad. Uh, I personally use the Guardian app and the ABC app for, for my news content and I go straight to the source. I feel a bit conflicted answering this question because my personal view disagrees with, you know, what professionally would be a sensible answer. And I believe very strongly that In our society, in our liberal democracy and our capitalist society, the only power we really have is with our feet and with our wallets. And that's why I don't use Facebook. I believe they're an unethical organisation and I believed this ever since I found out years ago that they'd conducted social experiments by feeding people negative information to identify what impact that had on their psychology They didn't put a call out. They didn't tell anyone that they were running a study. They just ran it without consent on people using the platform. And that, for me, was absolutely crossing an ethical line. You just, you can't run social experiments on a group of unknowing human beings. I think that is fundamentally wrong. And and that that was the point at which I got off Facebook. And, you know, and I realised there's access to people in my network that I now don't have because I refuse to use it. Think about what value your customers get from interacting with your organisation via Facebook. Mm. You need to go into that relationship eyes wide open, right? If you're investing on building your organisation or your community group 
or your business on somebody else's platform, you need to know that tomorrow they could change their mind about wanting to work with you and they could tweak one little algorithm and shut your business down, shut your organization down, shut your initiative down tomorrow. Like you are really putting yourself at the mercy of an organization that fundamentally doesn't even know who you are, let alone give about you. I would never do that with my business or my organization. I would never build that on somebody else's platform and, and be at the whim. That for me is a risk appetite that's way, way too far. But I guess for these organizations that find themselves in that situation now, you need to have a look at what the value is that you're delivering to your audience and look at other ways that you could potentially connect with that audience and, and build that value. Like, I mentioned before, I would probably touch 30 systems a day. That's in my work life. Like yeah. if you think my personal life in that as well, there are systems for school. There are systems for medical appointments. Even on my television, I have streaming services with a number of news net, of television networks and as well as Amazon Prime, as well as Netflix. How many systems would we touch a day? It's mm. probably hundreds does Facebook have to be one of those systems? You know, is that critical to connect to your audience? Like, yes, Facebook is a place that we gather, but it's there's also lots of other places where people gather. And yeah. so professionally, the answer is probably like, yeah, continue to use Facebook. If that's where you find your customers, you know, that's where you got to go. But personally, my view is these organizations and these platforms will only continue to exist while we use them. Yeah. And if, you know, and if we all turn our back on Facebook tomorrow, which I thought was actually half a chance of happening, I think if someone had rallied, when that, when that whole debacle with the news content was going on, if someone had rallied and said, right, everyone in Australia, you know, don't use Facebook, don't get on any Facebook products for a week. Well, there was people, I think, turning off it. And I think at the time, the ABC app was the most downloaded app that week. The problem is, I mean, I'm so conflicted on this. I have a take on board Facebook group. So it's not my page so much. No, but I don't pay any attention to my page on Facebook. But the group is incredibly helpful. Many of the people listening to this podcast are in that group and they help each other out. It's really hard to find other networks like that. And there are some, there's mighty networks, there are some others, but it's it's that stuff that I find really hard to replace, which is why I'm begrudgingly still on Facebook. If Facebook shut your group down tomorrow, you could pop up again on LinkedIn and you would probably get 80%. Oh, look, I tell you though, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, if you're listening, your groups are crap. They're just nowhere near as usable and user-friendly. Like we're talking about customer experience and user-friendly. The groups in LinkedIn are just... They're not like groups in Facebook. They are not as user-friendly in that way, which is a real shame. It's a real shame because if they were, I would. So LinkedIn, there's my plea to you. Get it right because that is absolutely where most of all the take on board people are over in LinkedIn as well. So if I could set up it, maybe I'll experiment. All right, Hannah, I'm going to experiment with take on board over in LinkedIn, but it's user-friendliness is different. The last question, and well, there's two questions here, but they're both related to the same issue. And it's about the relationship between basically board and technology staff. So Fiona asks, what should the relationship between the chief of technology and the board be like? And Martina asks, uh, have you got some good examples of boards that leverage the technology from inside their organisation? So can you just touch on that for us before we wrap? I'll address the second question first. No, I haven't yeah. any examples. 
of where the board effectively leverages the technology now within the organisation. Huh. My experience is not all encompassing though and usually my organization helps people that struggle with technology so so therefore my experience is probably at the less mature end of the technology spectrum in our organizations because they're the people that need help and they're the people that go to consultancies for help um, what was that first question again uh the relationship between the board and the chief of technology the cot maybe because i'm a little bit younger maybe because i grew up in a different era I don't really buy into the hierarchical information flows one way, autocratic command and control style of running organisations. In fact, I would say that I've built my whole career helping dismantle that kind of attitude and values, frankly, and build in place something that's more diverse, more collective, more collaborative, more that we're nodes in a network and we come together to solve problems that we need to with respect and psychological safety and we work together to achieve outcomes as opposed to, you know, that more traditional style of, of management and leadership. So I know that some boards have that more traditional view that, you know, the board speaks with one voice and that is that is from the chair to the CEO and the CEO talks to the organisation. I'm not a huge fan of that model, to be honest, because I, I think that bottleneck chokes collaboration and I think it chokes, I think it reduces effective information exchange and the ability to, to come together and solve problems and issues. Now, you know, you do need the separation of church and state when it comes to governance and management of the organisation, and that's super important. But I'm not sure that that means that only the CEO can talk at the board meetings. I, I don't really buy into that. In fact, I love hearing from the CTO. I love hearing from the head of customer, the head of sales, um, and marketing and in Greenpeace, you know, it's campaigning and fundraising. I love understanding those issues from the people who are qualified to and are paid to work on solving that problem every day, all day, and that's their job and they live and breathe it. I think the CTO should know the board members, absolutely. I think they should be a regular fixture in the board meetings, not necessarily for all of the information, but they should be presenting to the board. I'd, you know, I've, I think the CEO has got a big enough job without having to be across the nuance and detail of what every single one of their direct reports is doing right down in the weeds. So I think, you know, the other members of the executive group should be reporting to the board more broadly, not just the CTO, but I think the board should be hearing from and building relationships with those people because you want to have those relationships in place for when a situation occurs that you are under enormous stress and pressure and you have to make critical decisions for the organisation and how to proceed in a very complex environment where you have imperfect information and you don't know what's really going on, you don't want to be building a relationship in that moment as well because you've never actually had any FaceTime with this person or heard them speak or understood their perspective or had any kind of rapport or connection with them. Where I see that we're operating more collaboratively, more openly, where we've got more diverse teams gathering around the table to solve interesting problems, not only the more effective are we, but the more fun we all have, the more respect there is, the more psychological safety, the more we all learn. So we all get better. And I think that's a, yeah, a social dynamics and culture question as much as it is a, a, a logistics question about, you know, who appears before the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which also probably relates back to our earlier question about how do you attract the right people to the boardroom? So, there is so much gold in there for people. So, thank you again so, 
so much for um, sharing incredible cyber and tech wisdom with the Take On Board community today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure as always, Helia. Thank you so much. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation. Hello, fabulous people of the Take On Board community. I would love it if you could join me at the next Take On Board event, where I'll be in conversation with Morgana Ryan about developing strategy. You'll get some fabulous tips as well as get to meet others from the Take On Board community. It's a virtual event, so you can come from wherever you are in the world. Early bird tickets are on sale until the 7th of May, so get in as soon as you can. The link to book is in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you there.